And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, a proud part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. I am your host, J. David Weeder, but by now you know the drill. You can call me Dave. You also probably know that this is the podcast where I discuss comics featuring Marvel Comics Lawyer by Day, Superhero by Night, Daredevil. And that we are coming to the tail end of the original Frank Miller run on the titles. And to be honest with you, we're about to hit something that's going to start moving very, very fast. We've had a couple of filler issues, but at this point, the rubber starts meeting the road and we start moving towards the ultimate conclusion of this run. And frankly, coming to the conclusion of this run is very, it's becoming very satisfying, I guess I should say. It's not quite satisfying yet, because the Frank Miller run was one of the earliest mini-projects within the show that I ever started. And of course, there have been a ton of distractions along the way, but finally, we're getting down to the nitty-gritty. And we're doing that with this week's issue, Daredevil number 187, which is the October 1982 issue. And the cover by Frank Miller with Klaus Chanson is as simple as it comes. It's all white. Complete white background. Nothing there. Except in the middle we have Daredevil. And he is hunched over on his knees, clutching his head, saying, Stop it. Please stop it. And you know, if you take this cover and the covers from the last two, you have in 185, Daredevil being blasted by vibrant blue light. And recoiling from that, in the previous issue, we had him falling through a series of lights. Both of those show the progression of the story within the story that we're looking at, but they also show a certain movement from chaos into complete isolation. We're going from the internal, from what Daredevil's struggling with and the cause of that struggle, into the external, what we would actually see. And that starkness really brings us back to the idea that Daredevil is blind. That he lives in a world of nothingness in terms of sight, but take away that sense and you've got all the other senses that are just overwhelming him, which is part of the plot of the issue. And just as an aside, white is a very underused color for a cover. There are certain covers I can think of off the top of my head, like Amazing Spider-Man Annual where he got married, or the Avengers number 4 where Captain America comes back, and these all stand out on the stand because of that white color. It's such a different color, and it's kind of regal in and of itself. But cracking over that cover, we have a story entitled Overkill, written and penciled by Frank Miller, with inks and colors by Klaus Janssen and letters by Joseph Rosen. Like most of the previous issues, it is reprinted in Daredevil Visionaries Frank Miller Volume 3 Trade Paperback, Daredevil by Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen Omnibus, and then a simple trade paperback of Daredevil by Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen, Volume 3 specifically. It's in the usual digital haunts as well, Comixology, Kindle, and Marvel Unlimited. And diving into the synopsis, we start out right out of the gate with Daredevil really struggling and being overcome and overwhelmed by all the sounds of New York City. So much so that he doesn't realize for a moment that he is falling from a rooftop and in imminent danger. He comes to his senses long enough to execute a fall that is a little rough, but he can walk away from it, and he decides to find the one man who can help him. Meanwhile, at the city morgue, hand ninjas have invaded and they are after a corpse, but Black Widow arrives to try to thwart them. She fails because of some foot spikes, and the bad guys get away with the corpse, and Natasha's pretty well convinced that she has been poisoned. Back to Daredevil, he's at Duke's Pool Hall, where he is looking for his mentor, Stick. 
But Daredevil becomes overwhelmed by the smells and the sounds of the place and once again comes at the mercy of the bad guys who aren't going to show him any mercy. Meanwhile, in an O. Henry comedy of errors, Stick is at Josie's bar looking for Matt when a bunch of hand ninjas come upon him and attack. Stick fights them down and becomes victorious, but still, Matt is in trouble and he's trying to flee from the scene of Dukes when he comes into the path of a cab. The bad guys catch up to him and are giving him a beating when the cab driver gets out and actually helps Daredevil, chases them off, and then offers Daredevil a ride, ejecting his current fare. Back at S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters, Nick learns that Natasha has not just been poisoned, she's been given a form of aggressive cancer, which will be terminal if not treated. Begrudgingly, Nick walks into the room to tell Natasha the bad news. Daredevil gets back to Josie's bar, once again looking for Stick, but history repeats itself, with him becoming overwhelmed by his senses and getting thrown out the window of Josie's himself. Back at Matt Murdock's place, Stick is addressing several members that look like Ninja. We don't know a lot about them because they're in shadow, and they are discussing Daredevil's place in this overall war with the Hand. They agree that Matt is not ready, but he could be, and he may be their last hope. And that's when Matt walks into his house and tells Stick to please help him as he collapses. And wrapping up the issue, we have a scene at a church, thankfully deconsecrated, where hand ninjas gather around the familiar form of the hand assassin, Kirigi. They perform a ceremony which involves the ninjas themselves sacrificing their life, and Kirigi lives again, and the master of the hand tells Kirigi, there are so many people you must kill. And so closes Daredevil number 187, which we're going to talk about at length, but first, we're going to do a podcast promo break, and then I will be right back. Hi, John. Hi, Maggie. I'm still wrapping my brain around the fact that we're married. <laughs> Me too, but I wouldn't have it any other way. Aw. Oh, hey, I was looking at these old comics and I noticed that there's Hold a Hold that thought. Why don't we talk about it on our podcast? Do we have a podcast? It seems like the logical next step. We get married, we change our names, we combine our comic collections, we start a podcast about comic books. Well, I can't fault your logic, but there are plenty of podcasts out there already. Do you really think we'll have anything new and interesting to say? Oh, I think we'll manage. Welcome to the Married with Comics podcast, where we constantly fuck up. <laughs> she goes from Marvel Girl to Phoenix to Marvel Girl to Jean Grey to Phoenix to Dead. Um, <laughs> and then apparently he's so consumed with his own thoughts that he runs right past three monkeys. <laughs> yeah. and now, uh, a brainwave camera took a picture of that guy's head. <laughs> a brainwave right? camera. Uh, and Ben's just basically, whatever you gotta do to stop the commies, Nick. So join us at the Married with Comics podcast. We're two newlyweds with a love for comics intelligently, critically, and thoughtfully discuss comic books. Also listen as we goof around, make jokes, and make fun of John for mispronouncing names. I do that a lot. Sometimes we'll pick a topic and review and discuss comics that relate to the topic. And sometimes we'll pick up a comic and see what discussion topics come up. Sometimes we'll spend an entire episode talking about how much Maggie loves Batman. The only thing that's almost as strong as my love for you is my love for Batman. The Married with Comics podcast. Available directly on our site at marywcomics.lipson.com, on iTunes, and wherever good podcasts are found. Also, check us out at Facebook at the Married with Comics podcast. We've got everything you need. All right, we are back, and I hate this issue. Just let me be up front. I completely hate this issue. And that's the show for this week. Hey, have a great week. No, I'm kidding. I don't hate this issue. I do have a big overall criticism, and that's the fact that this issue is very, very thin on plot points. It's almost all act one type stuff, a big setup. 
which in the grand scheme of things isn't bad in terms of where the story goes and what it's building toward. But as a single issue, it's a little thin and I would be a little upset at the time if I paid my 60 cents, 60 whopping cents and didn't get a lot out of it. Having said that, there are some really standout moments. And Frank Miller on art this time, he is on point. The very opening page, we have Daredevil recoiling as he's in the air, much like the cover of number 185. And it's on a giant splash page where the background is nothing but words describing the sounds of the city coming through. Horns honking, voices echoing through the alleys, and these are just pounding Daredevil. It's a really, really strong opening page. And it gets better from there, to be honest with you. The next shot is Daredevil realizing, oh crap, I'm falling. And there is a horizontal panel that goes across two pages, with Daredevil being the smallest object in there, with the city looking gorgeous, of course. Water towers, steam coming off of the building tops, things like that. And Daredevil's just plummeting. And we realize, as an audience, the same thing that Daredevil realizes at the same time. We're in trouble. And the sequence kind of resolves itself as Daredevil grabs a clothesline, and that slows his fall enough that some garbage will cushion the landing. But it's still, it's a rough, rough landing, and Daredevil's limping away from from it. So we know that this has escalated from the last couple of issues. His being exposed to an isotope in issue number 185 led to his senses slowly getting out of control last issue, and now they are permeating everything. Or at least we'd like to blame the isotope, wouldn't we? When you think about the way Matt experiences the world through his other four senses and how sensitive they are in turn, you know he has to employ a lot of discipline to filter out the sounds that are overwhelming and focus on the sounds and sensations that are beneficial that inform his world around him. Should Matt have a lapse in that discipline, we're going to run into some trouble, right? So what's happening here? Was it an isotope or is Matt reaching a point in his discipline that he's letting everything in? And I think it could be a little bit of both. To build on what I was talking about last time, since Bullseye, since Matt saved Bullseye, since Matt almost killed Bullseye, and when since Bullseye killed Elektra, and since Elektra came back in the picture just to layer that in here and she died at the hands of Bullseye, Matt has slowly become unglued. We've seen him propose out of nowhere to his girlfriend Heather Glenn and then proceed to treat her like trash, dragging her through the mud, allowing her company to be destroyed, all while telling her she should quit the whole business thing and not save something that's very valuable to her and just be barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen as his wife. It's been a plot point that has been bothering me quite a bit, and, and I think what we're seeing is Matt becoming completely unraveled because of everything that's happening, that it's well outside of what he would normally deal with. This is the culmination of Wilson Fisk coming back, reclaiming the Kingpin mantle, Elektra entering the picture and being a ninja assassin, as well as Bullseye, just the chaos that Bullseye causes, and the fact that when he had his tumor, it was Daredevil that Bullseye saw everywhere, causing him to go on a killing spree. Not just to mention that Daredevil saved his life in order to give him a chance to have that tumor removed in the hopes that he would be redeemed, only to find out that Bullseye's just a straight-up killer naturally. So there's a lot of blood on Matt's hands, and some of that blood is Electra, somebody he saw as an innocent when they were in college, who turns out to be not so innocent now. So a lot of normal definitions have left Matt's life, including the hand coming in and completely turning things upside down. The isotope probably didn't hurt the process of his discipline becoming unraveled, but it probably didn't cause it at a core level. There's something psychological happening here. Daredevil Matt is losing his mind. He's losing all the discipline, and he's losing definition. And this is something that has hasn't been particularly clear to me in the readings that I've done on this issue before. 
I mean, no secret to listeners, I've been scratching my head on why Matt is losing his mind, and suddenly it all makes sense that internally, subconsciously even, his mind is reeling against everything and trying to incorporate it. All of these twists and turns that his life has taken, presumably in a relatively short amount of time, it's got to be mind-blowing, it's got to be overwhelming. Matt's senses reacting to that, losing that discipline, dropping the shields, are him trying to incorporate a way of dealing back into his equation. It's kind of like a vaccine. You're given a low dose of the sickness itself in order to fight any oncoming and new strains of that sickness. Matt's body and his his senses are trying to tell him what he is not consciously aware of, and that's the fact that he is losing it. He is losing touch, and he is acting out based on that loss of touch. His frames of reference have been gone. His whole definition of good, bad they're being damaged, it's really taking a toll on Matt. And suddenly looking back in context, it makes sense that he would have run into the Punisher, somebody who takes the vigilante thing much further than Daredevil would in the lethal type of way. As well as Daredevil's own ability to presume innocence, Hogman really threw him for a loop with that pacemaker. Matt ended up defending a killer in court. And that's got away heavily when you can't trust that certain lie detector sense, or any of his other senses up to par. To put it in a nutshell, Daredevil has landed in a large patch of gray. Nothing is clearly good, nothing is clearly evil, and his psychology isn't able to process this. Now his senses are a physical manifestation of that. He's not able to process and filter out things that he could before. Matt is very, very sick psychologically, and he needs help, and he's reaching out to the one man who can help him, and that would be Stick. A particular note on that, Matt is now seeking out Stick to get his senses back under control, that they're overwhelming him. Previously, he sought out Stick in number 177 to get his senses back up and running once he lost them. The opposite ends of the spectrum aren't missed on me. And I was just talking last time about how Miller doesn't give us a lot of internal processes, but I think now I was right that we don't need to be spoon-fed it. It is right there on the page. It just takes a little bit of digging, and of course, I'm not opposed to digging a little bit. But let's leave Matt for just a little bit and move to the next scene in the city morgue. We have ninjas stealing Kirigi's body and Black Widow shows up to stop them. And this sequence, this entire fight sequence is absolutely stunning. And I have to give credit to Jansen because the colors really do make this work. Most of this is in silhouette and the background is primarily in red and black. Red for the walls and black for the floors and other objects. It really amounts to nothing more than an extended fight sequence between Black Widow and the ninja. But it just pops off the page. It is gorgeous. It's, it's just so innovative at the time. So Jansen really elevates this. If this had been a regular panel, regular coloring, regular detail, there would have been nothing wrong with it. It would not have been broken. It would have looked gorgeous anyway. This looked different from anything else on the stands at the time, not just because it is ultra-violent, and certainly the silhouettes shield us against the worst of this violence, but because this violence is given to us in a very clear artistic fashion. Most professional comic artists can give us a really great action scene. Month in, month out, comics are full of action scenes. But it takes something really unique to catch your attention. And this is that unique style. The red really ratchets up the mood of the scene and the silhouettes really give it a feeling of almost a puppet show. A really nice artistic puppet show. And Black Widow. Hey, she hasn't been in the book for quite a while, so it's always nice to see her. I know if I was writing Daredevil, Black Widow would appear at least once or twice. She's an important part of Daredevil's past and really part of his failures in a lot of ways as a boyfriend or a couple or whatever you want to call it. Daredevil and Black Widow didn't have the best relationship. They were passionate about each other, but they just weren't in a place where they were ready to pursue a relationship like they were. Having said that, the silhouette angle really takes away from the fact that we are in one of the ugliest costumes Black Widow has ever worn. 
Her hair is short, kind of like a soccer mom cut, and she's in this plain gray jumpsuit with this high collar. And this costume actually has a spider emblem on it. And I just, I don't think it's exciting. I don't think it's visually cool because it doesn't give any definition to her. The only reason I can see for wearing this costume is to show off that, hey, she's got curves. She's a beautiful woman. Well, we know that. Removing some of the rougher parts of her costume, the black leather just takes away and makes her look a little bit more weak. And I guess it's more to make her homogenous with the other superheroes, which she's moving into that realm at this point, because she's a big part of the Avengers. But I think it also subverts who Natasha really is. I mean, she is a super spy. She does have blood on her hands. There's more to her than just this simple superhero. And as this issue goes on, it does seem more and more like Miller's just avoiding showing that costume altogether as much as he possibly can. So he probably shares my disdain for it. Hopefully for the same reasons I dislike the costume, that it's more form-fitting, gives us that whole nude woman feel without really showing us who the character is, basically just exploiting that she has a great body, and that's disappointing. Natasha's worth more than that. And she mentions that she's been pursuing these hand ninjas since they left South America. So the fact that she gets stuck by some floor spikes really bothers me, but it leads to the next stage for Natasha. And actually, let me talk a little bit about that before we move on. Yes, Natasha gets an aggr- what they call an aggressive form of cancer. So she's been given a death sentence, and it's going to be progressive, and it's going to fall right into play with the next issue and how she comes back into Daredevil's life. And for Natasha, this kind of thing is horrible because you point a gun at Natasha, you have her tied up, she'll find a way to get out of it. She'll find a way to live if there is a bad bad guy that she can hit, that she can exploit, that she can trick, she will find her way out of deathly situations every single time because she is competent. But something like this, something that's raging through her body and slowly destroying her, it's not a bad guy she can fight. It's kind of the same fate that befell the original Captain Marvel, Marvel, and he succumbed to it. He did pass away. It was something that, you know, it's not within the superhero realm. People deal with sickness every day and they have to fight and they have to fight hard. And this is one of the first times Natasha is really up against the odds in a way that she can't win. And if my main complaint about this issue is that it's mostly setup, this particular setup works extremely well, especially with Nick Fury sadly coming into the room saying we have to talk and there is a knowing look on Natasha's face. Everything to do with the Black Widow in this issue is made of win. This is easily the best part of the whole issue. Natasha's fight with the hand, the way that's depicted, as well as her reaction and the revelation of what is happening to her and what the stakes are. However, when it comes to Daredevil in this particular issue, it's a lot of padding, and I mean a lot of padding. Daredevil goes to Dukes, he gets overwhelmed with his senses once again because somebody's blowing smoke, and then he's in trouble. And then we have the whole comedy of errors. Stick is at Josie's looking for Daredevil. Oh, he's not there because he's looking for you. Oh, thank you, oh, Henry. I've read The Gift of the Mad Guy. But hey, we get some hand attacks on Stick. And we know for a fact, because we see it on the page, that Stick can kick some ass. However, it is indicative that something big is going down when the hand outright attacks Stick out in the open with no subterfuge. So let's do a checklist here. The hand have stolen the body of Kyrgy because they're going to resurrect him. And this was a guy that was already hard to kill to begin with. They poison the Black Widow with something that is tearing her apart at a cellular level. And they make an assassination attempt on Stick, all within the realm of a few pages at this point. The most exciting parts of this issue do not involve Daredevil. However, being as that they involve certain strong members of the supporting cast, it tends to carry the issue forward. Not enough to make it feel like a complete issue, but it does help quite a bit. However, Daredevil does have a great moment. He's running from Duke's pool hall, being chased by some random thugs when he runs in the middle of the street where the smells, the sounds, all of that of the cars overwhelm him once again. 
And in a scene that would be taken for Spider-Man 2, a cabbie rushes out to defend Daredevil and chases off these thugs, kicking his fare out and giving Daredevil a ride on the house back to Josie's. This is a great scene. It's comical and it shows that New York, knowing that superheroes are out there and knowing that they are protecting them, New York will react. They will support their local superhero. And that kind of lends into the idea that superheroes inspire heroism in others, which I love the idea. I've always been in love with that idea, and it's something that fits right here. It's also just a nice comedy beat, and this isn't an issue with a couple of heavy, heavy moments. And that brings us to my biggest gripe of the issue. Daredevil goes to Josie's, and we see this same scene play out where he's getting mouthy with some of the locals, and they overpower him because of his senses. We basically have the same sequence within the same issue two times with similar results. Now, there is a great joke here, as once again, Josie's window is busted out. And this time, though, it's Daredevil that goes flying out the window, bringing a satisfying conclusion to this running gag. Since Miller introduced Josie's, Daredevil has thrown people out the window, other people have thrown other people out the window, but Daredevil himself has not gone out the window until now, so his fortunes have massively changed. But at the same time, it feels like the whole Duke's pool hall sequence could have been avoided. We could have just started with Josie's and moved forward, instead of repeating ourselves within the same issue with the same bit. It's very, very annoying, and it's very frustrating when you're using a limited number of pages to tell a specific story, and you're wasting these pages by repeating yourself. There are far more interesting things to focus on in this issue that you could be using that page count for. The perfect example comes in the very next scene in which Stick is addressing a bunch of ninja in shadows, which, you know, we immediately think might be the hand, but it's not. Miller deserves a lot of credit for expanding Daredevil's surroundings, his supporting players, and as well as the mythology that's specific and native to Daredevil himself. If you look at some of the early issues of Daredevil, most of the characters that were introduced that are native villains weren't that great. You had the owl, which I love the owl, but has he been well used? No, he has not. Would I use him well? Yes, I would, but that's another story. You have Kilgrave the Purple Man, which did not become a cool character until Brian Michael Bendis got a hold of him. Mark Wade really went on to define him in a different way, in a great way, but Bendis is the one that put Kilgrave back on the table. Two characters that took forever to come to fruition. And when you think about it, of the villains that are native to Daredevil, you really only have Bullseye that is the standout of the bunch. At least up to the point that we're looking at in Frank Miller's run. Of course, Frank Miller brought in Elektra, which is a big part of the Daredevil mythology, as well as being a standout character in her own right. Frank Miller also reintroduced, revitalized, and redefined the Kingpin. While not a native Daredevil villain, he was brought over from Spider-Man. Frank Miller made him a Daredevil villain. He created this character that was a viable idea. A man who runs all of the organized crime in New York and who is essentially untouchable. And this is a character that has paid out in dividends over the years. Much like Elektra, much like Bullseye, these three characters became big parts of the Daredevil lore. Two out of three of those are native to Daredevil. The fourth thing he introduced, and the biggest part that helped really shoot Daredevil in a different direction, was the hand. Not only are ninjas cool, not only do we like seeing Daredevil fight ninjas, we have Eastern mysticism brought into Daredevil for the first time. Something beyond street-level villains, something bigger than Daredevil. And something that is incredibly interesting and dynamic at the same time. Now, the Hand have thwarted us several times already. We've seen they're hard to kill. We've seen how far-reaching their power is and how dangerous they really are. What we haven't seen, at least in a full scope, 
is the opposition. We've had Daredevil and Elektra fighting the hand, but now we see that they are not the first. But we have these other individuals, Stick, and what we will learn is the Chaste. A group of ninjas whose sole focus is specifically to oppose the hand. Stick being a part of Matt's origin brings a whole new aspect to what happened to him. The idea that Stick was grooming him to be something more than what he even became, what he thought he could become. It adds a bit of a sinister idea to it as well, that Matt was being groomed for a war between ninjas. Matt was essentially a pawn in a bigger game, and that brings a whole new aspect to his origin, as well as just, of course, the added bonus of learning how Matt trained himself to hone those senses to really focus and learn to fight. These are important elements to Daredevil, and it really patches in a big part of that puzzle. Here, just like in Man Without Fear, which I covered way back in the early episodes of the show, we learn that Matt was Stick's greatest failure. Well, almost his greatest failure, but we'll get to that. Matt never became what Stick wanted. And if we are to look at Stick as a surrogate father or a second father or a father figure, that means Matt has also disappointed a man that really represents a bit of Jack Murdock as well. So Daredevil's wearing his costume and being a superhero because he failed Jack Murdock, but also because he failed Stick. Also because he wants to defy Stick. He will not be what Stick wanted him to be. And to some extent, Matt has accepted that. He's accepted his failures of both of his father figures. And yet he works to make himself proud to some extent trying to honor the fathers, but trying to do what Matt feels is right and what is just. Having said that, as much as you can run from destiny, destiny will end up finding you. Sometimes in fiction, the character running away from his destiny ends up running smack dab into the middle of it. Matt coming home, needing help. That's a specific part of this. He's in a position where he needs Stick's help. And Matt coming home to this means he's being drafted into a bigger war. So Miller has spent some time wearing Matt down psychologically and creating a situation where his senses are reacting to that. And by wearing Daredevil down, by putting him in this position, Miller has put him in a place where he is ready, if not willing, to help with the ultimate cause. I will say, even though there's a frustration that this issue is all set up, the setup is done very, very well, and it's been done long term. We've been leading to this since, really since Elektra showed up. Miller has done an excellent job of layering stuff in, with the return of the Kingpin, who will play into the ultimate conclusion. Of course, by introducing Elektra into the equation overall, by giving us some peaks of the hand, by bringing Stick in, this is something where Miller has been running the long game for quite a while, and we're starting to see all of these components come into the forefront. And just to make sure we're completely aware of this, Miller puts the end tag on that will bring us to the next issue, and that is the resurrection of Kirigi. And it's a scene that's quite disturbing as some of the hand ninjas actually slice their own wrists, sacrificing their blood and their life to make sure that life force goes into Kirigi, the ultimate killing machine. From death comes a second life, but it's a half-life. Kind of like Voldemort in Harry Potter. He's not whole, not until later. Now, Daredevil's had some run-ins with cosmic beings and things of that nature, but the hand is something completely out of his realm because they are so deeply entrenched in the world and completely invisible for the most part and completely corruptive. They're corrosive in and of themselves. And if you were reading the run as it was coming out and you were on the fence as far as the hand, this particular scene would definitely sell you on the oh crap factor. We know Daredevil is up against something he's never really faced before, and that is death. Certainly characters have died along the way for Daredevil's journey, but very few of them have come back. And what we're going to see is that idea of resurrection comes with a huge cost. But is it a cost that Daredevil will be willing to make? And that's what we're going to find out as this story progresses. For now, let's move into the final verdict for Daredevil number 187. I've kind of put my two biggest criticisms on the table already. One, the idea that this issue feels a little thin. There are some great scenes, 
like the Black Widow scene, like the scene with Kirigi. But as a whole, it feels a little short of what I would have paid my 60 cents for. I wanted something complete in and of itself. Likewise, most of what we get is stretched out. We have two scenes where Daredevil enters a bar, his senses get overpowered, and he's at the mercy of the people around him. The Josie scene was particularly rewarding in its own way in that we had him going through the window of Josie's, something that's been a running gag up to this point. But for the bulk of this particular issue, Daredevil has nothing to do but get his ass kicked. And certainly we want to put Daredevil in a position where he is overpowered because that's going to lead him to stick and what's happening next. It just feels like it could have been done in a more succinct and tight manner. Some of the bits we get are fantastic. The idea that Matt's senses may be working against him in a way to cure his psychological ailment and bring him back into the forefront of where he needs to be in terms of his attitude. It also being a big piece of what's to come and leading to what he needs, which is Stick's help, which comes with a cost in and of itself. Matt's about to be drafted into a bigger war. Still, when I think about this issue, one of the biggest standouts to me is still the Black Widow scene. It's fantastic. It is violent. It is involving ninjas, but it's done in a way that I hadn't seen done up to this point. Artistically, it moves the ball down the road in a way, and it leads to some great bits from Frank Miller down the road. We see Frank Miller evolving. Again, from the house style that he started out with to really being evocative and really trying new things, and things that are mostly working, to be honest with you. His line work has gotten a little bit rougher, but it fits in here. Regrettably, that evolution leads to the art style we see in something like The Dark Knight Strikes Again, in which the art looks so unfinished and sloppy it was insulting to even pay as much as I did for those issues. However, this is not here to cover The Dark Knight Strikes Again. We're still talking about Daredevil number 187. It's hard to really gauge this issue because it is part of a whole. In fact, I'm reading it out of the omnibus in which the next issue is a page turn away. In that context, it's just a building block to a bigger storyline, and a storyline that I overall really like. In the context of reading it within the omnibus, where we're turning pages, we're going to the next issue instantaneously, this really continues the momentum, to be honest with you. It propels me into the next issue, which I'm excited to go into. But if this was 1982 and I wasn't five years old at the time, say I was 14, 15 and I was buying Daredevil monthly, would this be a satisfying buy? And I can't say that it would be. Even though there's a lot put on the table, we don't know that in the context of reading this issue to issue in real time back in the day. So it ends up in that context feeling a lot like a placeholder with a really good fight scene in the middle of it. As a single issue, I still find myself a little disappointed by it. Even though the art stands out, the substance is a little bit thin. Because it feels like it serves just to get our blood going just at the very end of the issue. And then it ends up feeling like I kind of wasted at least half this issue hanging out in a pool hall in Josie's bar. Well, I hadn't thought about that until I said that out loud, Daredevil's big contribution to this issue is hanging out in bars and getting his ass kicked there. Suddenly, this issue drops a few points in my measure. But of course, this builds towards next time. Let's look forward to that one and looking at the story overall. But that brings us to the end of yet another episode of Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Next time, we pick up with some of the story threads we've introduced here. We get some ninja action. We get Stick trying to rehabilitate Matt. Things start heating up very, very heavily next issue. So let's all agree to be here in one week's time. Until then, remember, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. You have been listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Daredevil and other Marvel characters are copyright Marvel Comics. Any music or sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. This show earns no money and exists for entertainment purposes only.
him a ghost rider when you hear his name. Hey, a devil fight for what is right. 